Podcast talking all things Disney with your hosts L. John Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome to Skull Rock Podcast. If this is your first time checking out the show, welcome. Every week we talk all things Disney and pop culture with never before heard stories, behind the scenes moments from some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, and much more. I'm your co-host Al John Go, musician, longtime Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars fan, and pop culturist. And you can contact me. We love those emails. Al John A L J O N at SkullRockPodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard, artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Amazon Music and Audible. And you can like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And you can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Dot com. Well, Al John, I think our, our uh, audience knows that we record on Sundays and the show drops on Monday. And I have to tell you, I'm so excited because I just watched Richard Branson and his team at Virgin Galactic make <laughs> history today, July 11th, Sunday, July 11th, 2021 is the beginning of space tourism. That's right. And uh, I have to tell you, it was spectacular watching uh, uh, Branson and team go up into, into space on the Virgin Galactic Unity 22. Uh, see it drop from the mothership Eve, uh, which is named <laughs> after his mother. Yeah. And uh, it was just absolutely spectacular. Uh, and they're on their way back down to Earth. So there you have it, Al John. What an exciting weekend. It really is. It is. Mark the calendar for today where space travel has gone commercial. And it, maybe one of these days uh, we'll be going up to space before our dying breath. <laughs> we'll just have to see about that. Hey, I, I'll tell you one thing. I, I'm I'm going to do it. I You You're know, maybe it it'll nice. be five years from now. Maybe it'll be 10 years from now or 15 years from now. But I will go to space. Nice. And, nice. I, and I just hope there isn't a petition that tells me to stay in space like they've done with you. <laughs> Bezos. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I, I'm like, now Now that we have the ability, you know, we've always had the ability, but commercially we now have the ability to get out there, get into space. Um, I wonder how much space, more space trash will be up there now that people will request, uh, when I die, I want my ashes scattered throughout space and, you know, and all this stuff happens, you know, because I was just, re I was just looking at, um, some animated thing, you know, with my, my kids about space junk and collecting space junk and mm -hmm. trashing and space junk and how it re-enters the atmosphere. Now I have to wonder how much more space junk we're going to put up there now that commercial travel is available. I know. It, it's actually pretty amazing, though, because now anybody who can purchase a ticket will be able to have this experience. And that's what it is. It's an experience. It's it's being able to uh, go outside the Earth's atmosphere, experience weightlessness yeah. and uh, come back safely. And I think that today's uh, Virgin Galactic flight uh, certainly proves that. Uh, awesome. And it's going to be, I'm excited to see Jeff Bezos go up in his rocket and, you know, there are two <laughs> different types of experiences, but holy mackerel. 
yeah, it seems like the final frontier for multi-billionaires is space, right? So <laughs> yeah, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe it's gone beyond private jets and super, uh, super yachts. Now it's uh, going into space with your own spacecraft. Exactly. I've got, I don't even have a private jet anymore. I just have my own space shuttle. We'll just take off. <laughs> hey, uh, before we get in any further on the show, I have to say that we have an awesome guest waiting in the green room. We do. Absolutely. He is doing his scales on his trumpet. Uh, we've got Rick Baptist, uh, who uh, actually, I mean, I'm, I'm going to save all the accolades uh, and introduction for later, but uh, fantastic guy. I've worked with him on many, many projects over the years, and I just love him. He's, he's terrific, and I can't wait to get to him. In Nashville, we have a term called first call, and he is beyond first call. He is the top tier of musicians that I've ever will have a chance to talk to. And I can't wait for this because huge fan of his work. Um, so anyway, we'll talk about that in a little bit. And and before we get into the pop culture news, Dave, I hope you had a great fourth. Um, we shot fireworks around here. And of course, in Tennessee, that is like a pastime that has no specific date. Uh, you know, fireworks <laughs> just go off randomly here in the country. Uh, but, well, you know, out here in California, uh, where I live, uh, fireworks are illegal. Yeah. Uh, and we are in the midst of another drought uh, and have triple digit temperatures. And it's dry as a bone. Uh, there's yeah. already uh, wildfires burning. They had to evacuate a town up in Northern California on the border with Nevada. Uh, and, you know, it's, I, I love watching fireworks. I mean, I absolutely love it. And so on the 4th of July, we watched the Macy's fireworks show uh, in New York Harbor. Uh, and that was incredible. Yeah, I'm absolutely sure. incredible. I am sure a lot of people too watch that. And a lot of people also watch the, the Nashville show, um, you know, which was one of, from what I was told, one of the largest firework displays and shows out there. Um, so yeah, it was, it was great to kind of everybody kind of come back and I understand that you guys are in a dry spell here. It's been raining nonstop. So, uh, you know, plus, plus my voice dropped a couple octaves, uh, over the past week, I almost lost my voice and everything. So. Whoa. I know it's crazy. Well, we right? can't. We we can't have that happening. <laughs> Absolutely not, because then we couldn't do this. Skull Rock Podcast this week in Disney and pop culture. Oh boy! Oh boy! Disney's back, Dave. Disney is back in a big way. Uh, you shared the box office returns with me from Variety. Eighty million. 80 it's, million in theaters, yeah, it, 60 it, million. It, it's fantastic. I mean, the movie theaters are coming back, you know, uh, $80 million at the domestic box Shoot. office this weekend. It had a blowout uh, sneak peek on Thursday evening. Um, and it's the biggest North American start by far since the COVID crisis commenced. The film earned another $78 million at the international box office and $60 million on Disney Premier Plus access. That's where you have to pay the uh, the upcharge uh, in order to watch it. But uh, they have a global uh, a global box office all combined north of two hundred and fifteen million dollars for the weekend. That's Black Widow, which, by the way, Al John, I am going to go see this afternoon in IMAX because yeah. this is one of those films you have to see on the biggest, biggest screen you possibly can with the largest sound system. I 100%. I want that so bad. I hope 
I hope we can work that into the schedule at some point. Kristen and I may have to watch it separately while one of us watches the kids because it is, uh, they had a huge meltdown yesterday. <laughs> Boo and Jack Jack just went off the walls crazy yesterday. And so we didn't even go to the drive-in. We didn't do anything. We just stayed at home during our, our staycation. Um, but um, yeah, we can't wait to see this film. It's already been spoiled for me. People they are like, you know, that. the initial thought was I was going to go watch this, but uh, you know, during its opening weekend. But uh, anyway, hopefully we'll get to watch it really soon. But hey, the box office is back in a long way. Uh, the Fast Saga continues to draw money. We've got uh, another $10.8 in their coffers there for Universal. We've got another, what is it, um, Boss Baby Family Business making making more money. You know, $8.7 million, the forever purge that you saw this week. Did you like that? <laughs> you know, it's, it, honestly, I only went to see it because I had seen everything else that was in the theaters right now. And so <laughs> it was... Um, it wasn't very good. Yeah. Uh, I'll just put it to you that way. Yes. I mean, it, it was a very predictable, comical, uh, um, ridiculous uh, blood fest uh, storyline. Story yes, and blood fest. Yeah, blood fest. Yeah, that's what Chris and Chris and I have watched every Purge movie. Of course, the first couple ones were really good. The actors are great, but yeah, it's it's really it's like the Saw franchise. It's like diminishing returns every time they reiterate something. It just gets less and less. Yeah. But, uh, you know, hey, you know, they're, they're, they're building the purge like a, like a Fast and Furious. It is what it is. Uh, they've collected a, a nice $37 million, um, and um, so good for them. And A Quiet Place continues to draw, you know, $3 million bucks, uh, which brings their domestic tally to $150 million. I'd say that people are looking for uh, entertainment outside of their home, Dave. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think this is this is a rebirth of the box office. Uh, I think uh, people are going to go back to the theaters and droves, as I've been saying all along. And I think that this is proving it. You know, provided that Hollywood's putting out great content, like, you know, a Marvel action movie like Black Widow. Um, and I'm looking forward to the upcoming uh, release of Jungle Cruise with uh, The Rock and Emily blunt and yes it's, it's the it's the summer of blunt it's the blunt summer it's the blunt summer you know do, yeah. do, you know it's interesting i'll have to play um i watch chris gore he's one of my favorite modern day film critics and um, chris gore was talking about you know studios relying on content and not great storytelling but i think if as long as they content doesn't necessarily mean great storytelling, right? right. So I'm, I'm hoping that the quality will continue and, and uh, I'll have to play that uh, clip for you at some point to, to, to get your hot take on it, Dave. But speaking of uh, great storytelling, we've got this. Gift or no gift, I am just as special as the rest of my family. Who wants more pink? All right, guys, where do I drop the wagon? Maybe your gift is being in denial. <sighs> So we've got Disney's Encanto, which is going to be hitting theaters this November. Dave, this is about a family with special abilities. And Maribel, part of the family, is a 15-year-old who's struggling to find her talents. And 
this looks to me like another another great great story uh, from the folks at Walt Disney Animation Studios, um, not Pixar. This is Walt Disney Studios uh, Animation. Correct. Looks really yeah. great. You know, it, I, it, it looks beautiful. I watched the trailer and I was a bit taken back by some of the animation, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, I'm I'm hoping that you know the trailer isn't represent really isn't representational uh, of the whole movie because uh, the the animation just came across a little bit uh, flat for me. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm just putting a critical eye on it, uh, Al John, and I'm not knocking the movie because uh, I haven't seen it, but just based on the trailer, I was a bit sort of, I, I really was sort of taken back a, a little bit. Well, isn't it like that Wreck-It Ralph style kind of, you know? I mean, it's uh, kind I don't know. I don't know. It seems to me like a lot of the, the newer uh, Disney stuff has that that look. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very similar to a lot of other films that are coming from other studios out there. Um, But you know, if you were if you were to look at say Tangled, um, and the the animation in Tangled, uh, and compare it to the animation here, um, I I think that people, you know, when you put them side by side, I think people will see the difference. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well. We'll we'll give it a shot. Let's check, take a, take a look at it here this November. Um, Interesting, interesting, interesting. So speaking of Disney and interesting animation, you also sent this note, Disney's next rights to animation, Dahlia and the red book in Latin America. It seems like uh, this push continues to happen ever since uh, Coco came out there and they're looking to expand their footprint into the Latin market with things like Eleanor, um, um, and then this as well. Did I say that right? Yes. Uh, or yeah. Disney plus, and then they've got the Disney channel series and they've got Coco and this as well. So, uh, Dahlia and the red book. Yeah. And I, I think this is great because, you know, look, uh, Disney is a global brand and uh, what works in the United States doesn't necessarily work in other parts of the world and vice versa. Uh, And so I applaud them for, you know, uh, snagging the rights to uh, stories that will resonate in different cultures and different parts of the world. Right. So uh, this story, Dahlia and the Red Book, hails from Argentine director David Bispano. Uh, from a mouse tale and is described as the never ending story meets corpse bride. And this does have a very distinct animation style seemingly um, by the trailer. So I, uh, I like it. I I'm looking forward to to checking it out. And I like the fact that, you know, Disney is doing, you know, these type of strategic partnerships and the whole thing with, um, you know, studio Ghibli, you know, and the things like that they've, they've done in the past. And uh, I'd love to see more of it or this. Yeah. I absolutely agree. And what's interesting, and I'm looking forward to actually seeing this particular film, is that it's combining um, uh, computer-generated animation, traditional animation, and stop-motion animation. Yeah. Uh, and, and I love uh, seeing those types of uh, films where they're combining different techniques in new and different ways. I mean, you know, go back to Al John, uh, the uh, Into the Spider-Verse. Yes, uh, you know, uh, stylistically, I just I, I love that because there there was a combination of 2D and CG going on uh, throughout that movie. Yes. And it was shot in such a such a great style, you know, with that, 
you know, uh, that that really quick frame animation or whatever you yeah. call it, but it had a great look to it, and uh, I'm looking forward to that and seeing more of that. And speaking of special animation, I had forgot to mention that we received that uh, press release regarding Star Wars Visions on Disney Plus, which is uh, speaking of uh, anime. This is all different anime studios doing these short films that mm-hmm. has a Japanese animation take on the Star Wars universe and these different stories. Um, we all know that Star Wars is is a great franchise that is just perfect for Japanese-style anime, and I'm a big fan of that as well. Uh, have you seen this trailer at all for Visions? No, I have not seen it. Yeah, um, yeah. It's really and, cool. Yeah, uh, But you know something? I, I've seen a couple of still frames from uh, from this, and it, I, I just love the fact that they're doing different animation styles. Absolutely. They've partnered up with production houses like uh, IG, Kamikaze Duga, uh, uh, Kinema Sirtris, and Science Saru, uh, just to name a few. But uh, it all has a really good um, good look, Japanese anime look. So it's very stylized, using the, the Star Wars uh, universe as a backdrop to tell these great stories. And in fact, there looks to be one of a rock opera that'll see a band of young musicians uh, forming to... Um, to save people. So that looks really cool because uh, we've never seen, other than the the Cantina band, we've never seen like a real rock band <laughs> in Star Wars. Exactly. Uh, barring, <laughs> barring the Christmas special that no one wants to talk about. So, <laughs> you know, which we had Jefferson Starship uh, on that one. So I guess Jefferson Starship is a band that transcends all universes. But uh, I'm looking forward to checking that out and that should be coming to us here in the fall, late fall. So we checking that out. And we also have uh, a note here. William Smith, action, action director and star of Laredo and Rich Man, Poor Man, dies at the age of 88. Yeah, you know, it was interesting. I think when people see his picture, they'll go, oh, yeah, I remember him. He was in, like, uh, Rich Man, Poor Man, Hawaii Five-0. He was in um, some of the movies uh, that uh, we've all seen, you know, um, uh, uh just coding. Uh, he was incredible. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you know, he, 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 he was in gentle savage eye of the tiger back in the seventies. He was in uh, tons of TV shows and uh, he, he acted with um, uh, Clint Eastwood in a number of pictures and uh, just really, uh, you know, he was in the any anyway, uh, any which way you can uh, uh, films where he squared off with uh, Clint Eastwood uh, on screen brawls. Uh, this guy was in the asphalt jungle. Uh, he was uh, just in uh, so many different uh, types of of films. Uh, he was in some of the black exploitation films, oh, yeah. Hammer, Black Samson, uh, and uh, others that I can't say on air. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, he was in some of those. That's right. And yeah, but it's I funny. mean, yeah. it, it, it's just it, it's really uh, again. I I just w- wanted to mention his, the, this passing because you know, look, he had a great career, great life. He was eighty eight years old, uh, and he was in so many different uh, films and television shows. It's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I know a lot of um, my generation will remember him from Conan because Conan the Barbarian, because uh, apparently he wrote his lines, the opening lines for his monologue that opens the film, quote, no one, no one 
this world you can trust. Not men, not women, not beasts. This is what you can trust. And he points to his steel sword that uh, Conan the Barbarian gets. So uh, there you go with Arnold Schwarzenegger. So just a great actor, very long, prolific work, uh, character actor since the 40s, all the way up until the, uh, I guess, into the uh, late 80s, into the 90s almost. You know, he, he started doing, he kept on working. So yeah. uh, good for him, and uh, he will be missed. And uh, I, I I hope everyone gets a chance to check out his work in that uh, Rich Man, Poor Man, Hawaii Five O, and of course, uh, Conan the Barbarian. So rest in peace, William. Absolutely. Well, I think it's time. All right, let's open up the doors and let Rick in. Oh, Al, John, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we've got an incredible guest. Uh, I'm happy to call him a friend. His name is Rick Baptist. He is a trumpeter extraordinaire, a a session musician. He's, I mean, this is unbelievable. He has been part of the American Federation of Musicians since the age of 12. He's played on 13,000 motion picture soundtrack scores. (laughs) And, no, 1,300. Or, and like, and like, <laughs> like 13,000 cartoons. I mean, he's he's played on the scores of the first 14 Pixar movies. He's right. played on Disney animation films from uh, The Little Mermaid through Frozen. I mean, unbelievable. Welcome, Rick Baptist, to the Skull Rock Podcast. It's so great to have you. Yeah. Oh, thank you, guys. Uh, I am excited to be here. Uh, normally, uh, I'm used to seeing Dave in the booth and telling <laughs> us how great we sound, but this is way cool. I'm just so thrilled <laughs> to to be here, and uh, uh, yeah, I'm ready to go. Lay it on me, baby. <laughs> well, you know something, Rick? I, I, you know, the amazing thing to me, and, and what I've always marveled at when when we've worked together, And as you mentioned, you know, I'm in the booth sometimes because you guys are on stage playing a score for something that I had worked on. And I I just always sat on the sofa and was just awestruck by the, the talent of all the musicians in those sessions. And it really was something else to watch. And and I just want people to understand that you're not just a musician, a trumpeter. Uh, you are somebody who walks onto a stage for a session and you're seeing the music for the first time, right? That's correct. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and so I sit there and go, I, I, you know, how, how do these guys do this? Because you bring all of these musicians together and clearly you've worked together with many of these people on a regular basis, but you all come in and you're all seeing the music score for the first time. It's not like somebody sent you the score and you're practicing at home uh, before you come to the session. You're actually seeing it. What, what is that like? What does that feel like? Actually, the thing that that I've always loved about that is, is that it absolutely keeps you at the top of your game. 
We do not, as you said, Dave, we, we have no idea what we're going to play. I mean, obviously, uh, we worked with uh, the composers before, but each score is so different, you know. And so mainly the musicians that we work in the studio with is uh, they're at the top of their game every time because as soon as you sit down as a trumpet player, I put that mouthpiece on my lip and we rehearse. We might rehearse one or two times and then the red light goes on and it's going to tape, you know. So it's a rush. It's a true rush. But the thing that I've always loved and appreciated is the fact that I am work with working with amazing musicians. And this is what I try to impart to some of the uh, younger musicians when I do things like this or do a master class or whatever, is that the thing that I have found that every musician I work with and, and work in the studios is the main thing that they do when they sit down, open up that book, they get ready to play, their concentration level is at 100% the whole time. And so, you know, the, the way I explain it to the younger musicians is like the first time you play a piece of music down usually is the best you play it because your concentration is at 100%. The second time you play it is when you make mistakes, you make clams or whatever because your concentration goes down. So every one of those musicians, when they sit down to play, the whole time, their concentration is 100%. Because nobody wants to make a mistake. I mean, when you're working on a big, big movie with 100 musicians, and uh, especially trumpet players who play, as you know, we can play very loud, you know. Well, when we make a mistake, everybody hears it. We don't want that. So you just concentrate the whole time and play the best you can. But that's pretty much in a nutshell what the mindset of all the musicians are when they're there. And for me, as far as the cartoon parts, uh, I love doing cartoons. Ever since I was a kid, I, I watched all the cartoons, as I'm sure all of us have. But when we when in uh, uh, 1990, when I started doing Tiny Tunes and Animaniacs and Picking the Brain and Taz and all those, I realized that that's what I really love doing to be, you know, not only play what the composer wrote, but be creative about what we do or what I do and what I can bring to that score. That's what I love. I do that. And a couple things I, I, I want to uh, mention here. I remember being in recording sessions where the first take was the best take. I mean, it was yeah. like the, the composer or the conductor at, at the podium was like, wow, that's it. And we would always do one more for backup. Right. Uh, but, but like you said, it was that hundred percent concentration because oftentimes that first take of a cue Boy, that was it. Boom. You did it. Yeah. I mean, and that's, and again, that's the rush behind it, you know, mm -hmm. and most of the time, uh, you know, there's some composers who like to rehearse and play and, and make a take after take after take after take. And I'm sure in film actors, I've talked to actors, they said the same thing. The first take, first or second take do of the, they do of the scene is usually the best because your whole body, your whole brain, your whole spirit, everything is put into that take. You know, the more you do it over and over and over again, you know, again, the concentration does sometimes go down and that's when you have mistakes. So, yeah, it's absolutely right. You know, you're, what you said is absolutely correct. There is, we never did more than one or two takes, maybe a pickup take, whatever, but that was it. The red yeah. light was on 
all the time, you know? Well, that's because you're, I have to say, Rick, because I'm also a musician, not of, not of course, your, your caliber, of course. But, the guitar uh, in the back. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, but I remember going through my juries and everything and you had to be, because I was also a music education major at, at at one point uh-huh. um but sight reading is definitely a skill and for everyone uh sight yeah, reading is. is exactly what rick described you sit down for the first time reading a piece of music but that just goes to your vocabulary the the millions of hours you've practiced to become you know the artist that you are today and um it's not easy but there's also that spontaneity that happens when you 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 get together with a group of musicians that that i think you have to experience and everything clicks. The conductors is is doing everything great. The cues just happen magically. Everybody's, as you said, on their on their A game because no one wants to right. make a mistake. They come in where they're supposed to come in, and 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 there's that electricity, and you can only feel that you know the first time when you play a mu- a, a mu- piece of music together. That's very true. Very true. Hey, Rick, let me ask you this. Um, I, I want to step back in time here because yeah. I, I was really blown away because I had not known this uh, until leading up to uh, our conversation today. But you actually were you you joined the American Federation of Musicians at age 12. How's that possible? Well, I again, I <clears throat> the way I became. A trumpet player was uh, in the fifth. I, I was born with asthma. I still have asthma to this day. Uh, when I was in fifth grade, I was running around the track at school and my left lung collapsed. I was 10 years old. Uh, they were able, the doctors were able to say whatever, you know. And so the doctor, Dr. Feldman, God bless him, he said, I suggest you take up a wind instrument to help build up your lungs, right? So back in those days, uh, fifth grade, uh, you could go uh, pick a band instrument, right? And so I'll never forget, there was an Ed Sullivan show we watched every Sunday night. And Harry James was on the Ed Sullivan show. And I thought, wow, trumpet, that would be cool. And so I went to school immediately, ran and grabbed a trumpet. Thank God my folks, uh, they, uh, we rented a trumpet from San Lorenzo Music Center, which is in Northern California. And it came with three lessons, right? And so I, that's how I started playing. And like I said, I was 10 years old. And at age 12, I mean, the trumpet, I, I really was not... And I don't like telling this story, but it's the truth. I never really liked practicing. I never liked playing at home because, uh, and even to this day, if I have a couple of days off, uh, you know, uh, and I'll call one of my fellow trumpet players, mainly this uh, great uh, female trumpet player, Glenda Smith, and I call her up. I say, Glenda, I got a couple of days off. Uh, you got to beat me up. And I go over to her house and we play two hours nonstop of duets. After that, I was ready. But anyway, the trumpet came, and I thank God for this, came relatively uh, quick to me. I played. So at 12 years old, I was at the San Lorenzo Music Center. The gentleman, Juanito Silva, had a this big band, 18-piece uh, Latin band called the uh, Pan Americans. And he, he, I played in that, and they were all members of the union. <clears throat> so I figured, okay, I got to join the union. So 12 years old, and I had to get special permission from the Federation so yes, uh, next year I will be in a musician 
uh, in the Musicians Union for 60 years. Holy macro. But I knew that once I started playing, I took every job that came along. I played Chinese funeral, Portuguese Holy Ghost parades, uh, <laughs> any kind of bands, anything that I could play, taps at, 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 at uh, funerals, anything just to play my instrument. And wow. that's what I did the whole time through high school. And then at uh, uh, when I was uh, 20 years old, um, uh, Bobby Darren was uh, play, uh, came to San Francisco at a club called Mr. D's, and we, I played for him in the band and first trumpet in the band. And he said, "You know, kid, I like your playing." He says, "I'm going to Harris Reno uh, for two weeks. I want you to come up there as my first trumpet player." I said, "Well, yeah, that's great, but I'm only 20." And, yeah, lie about your age, you know. So I went <laughs> up there with him, and from there, I mean, I always knew I wanted to come to Los Angeles and work in the studios. That was the whole thing. I knew that because I watched the Oscars and hear those guys. And I'm thrilled to say that for 32 years, I was first trumpet player on the Oscars. Yeah, you know? which which is really amazing. I, we were, I, I was going to ask you about that. And now that you've brought it up, I mean, you, you did something that I thought was really interesting. You took photos of people, of right. uh, celebrities and stars and whatnot. You took photos from the pit. Right, exactly. And that's... Yeah. Yeah, so what we would do is, because the pit, I mean, we're right there. You know, the audience is there. Right up above us is where they accept awards. And so I always had my camera at all the sessions. I got I got a lot of pictures of Dave. That's awesome. Stuff with the uh, with the Sherman brothers and everything. Anyway, so what we would do, I would, I would sit in the pit, and the conductor is right there, right here. And so we play, and the winner, and the winner is playing the thing. I put my horn down, pick up my camera, lean back. Take snap a couple pictures. So I have of pictures for 33, it's over 30 years that no one's ever seen. And I'm actually, one day I'm going to do, and I know I talked to you about this, Dave, uh, I want to do a, uh, a coffee table book of, uh, uh, of all the photos along with stories. And the name, the title of the book, I've already got it in my head, is called The Best Seat in the House. Because truthfully, it is the best seat in the house. That's awesome. We, we got to do that, Rick. I remember you and I uh, met up at a Starbucks in Burbank, and, and we chatted about that outdoors. We were sitting outside uh, talking about that. One of these days, right? We're going to do this. Absolutely. We, we are going to do this. I'll be the first right. in line for that book. <laughs> I, I would. I love I, I That is a brilliant, brilliant uh, idea for a book, and, and, and I can't and wait. The stories. I, I love the stories, and that's, that's the thing. you know. And the thing that I always loved about it, and talk about playing. I love playing live and uh, uh, to see the audience reaction. Or, or But anyway, playing live and on the Oscars right before the show, the director would always in our headphones say, OK, folks, don't forget you're going live to a billion people. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> That'll get your juices going, you know, yeah, because yeah. you don't want a billion people to hear these you know, horrible mistakes or whatever, you know, I've made made so many clams playing live. I could have my own clam bake. But the thing is you said, Rich, (laughs) the thing you said, Rick was, was super important early on because you got up there and you played for people. You played it, you know, uh, like ice cream socials, you played everything and you played, yeah, you played, and that's how you hone your craft. Not only just the immense amount of sight reading you do, the more you do it, 
just like anything else, the better you are at it. And you are, of course, the king at it. And then you have all these little things playing in front of people. And that gets your chops going. And I would also assume, you know, the improv chops as well that you've proven uh, on so many different soundtracks. And I also want to point this out. Your IMDb page lists 169 credits to your name as composer. You have 169 credits uh, that that seems to be a really prolific number for you in the music department and soundtrack. I mean, I, I can't even imagine the hundreds of things you've done over the years for actor, composer, music department. Um, so just so our audience knows, it's everything, not just Disney, Pixar, it's everything. Right. X-Men, and, 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 Marvel, and everything. That's the great thing about being a studio musician. You get a chance to do this. Like I said, I, uh, I played on 1,300 movies. The fifth movie I played on when I moved to town from Las Vegas, where I was for 10 years in Vegas, honing my crap and and and, and learning to play and, and all that, uh, was E.T. with John Williams, you know. And so, you know, uh, just to say, but for me, again, the Disney movies, the Disney cartoons, there is something different. And with Pixar, the thing that we love Pixar, the musicians love Pixar so much is because they truly appreciate us so much. I mean, when you go on a Pixar movie uh, to do a movie uh, wherever, like Warner Brothers stage, they put up two cameras in front of the orchestra filming us, watching us, play the music that they pipe back to their studio so that all the animators can hear what our music is doing. They also, right in front of the conductor, have like this foam head, looks like a, a person's head, which is actually a 360-degree micro, microphone. So they hear everything. They appreciate us so much. And the products are, you know, and if I could, if, if I may tell one story about how important, and I think it can, it, it really goes to any movie, how important uh, a, mo a music is to movie. Uh, we were doing the movie Up, and the producer Pete Doctor came out. So with Michael Giacchino, who actually won an Oscar for that. All right, but Pete Doctor came up before, and we had one of the cues, and the cue was a, min a, a, a minute and a half cue, or no, three, three and a half minute cue. And it was, if you remember in the movie, it was right near the beginning where the old gentleman was reminiscing about his wife. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that three and a half minutes, if you don't have a little tear in your eye, you know, you have no soul. So Pete Doctor <laughs> got up to the podium, and uh, as David knows, uh, when we record the music, they show uh, they have a huge screen behind the musicians, and you, so you can see the scene you're playing to. But we never hear dialogue, right? So Pete got up there. He said, "Ladies and gentlemen, before you play this cue, I want you to put your headphones around, pawn, turn around." And I'm going to put the dialogue in your headphones so you can see as and hear what you're playing to. And so he did that, right? And we thought, oh, wow, that lovely, you know. And it was cool hearing the dialogue. So then we recorded the music. Then after lunch, he got back on the podium. He says, now, I want you to see what your music did to my movie. And he did the same thing. Put the dialogue with our music in the phone. We watched it, and 75 grown men and women were crying. Mm -hmm. That's the power of music. That's yeah. why I love what I do. 
And, and, and that's why David loves what he does. Yeah, but you know something? I've, I've also been a big fan uh, of music and musical scores, partially because I have a tin ear and I'm not mu- musical at all. <laughs> but but I can appreciate uh, music. And, and and certainly the uh, the music itself is a supporting character to the film. In other words, any movie that you look at, if you didn't hear that score it diminishes the overall uh, film uh, in my mind. Uh, I agree. And, and, and so, you know, people really need to uh, take that into account. It, it, it's this wonderful, wonderful layer that elevates the entire film, the performances of the actors and the, the dialogue that's being delivered and, you know, the visuals that are being presented. Now, and that's, and that's why a lot of the actors come and show up to scoring sessions. I mean, we've had uh, my favorite is Sir Anthony Hopkins. We were doing uh, 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 Red Dragon. And so he showed up and he brought his mother to the scoring stage. He got up, you know, and conducted afterwards. We were, I mean, I was talking with him and I asked him and he was he's the nicest man. Oh, my God. This is Ed, Tony Hopkins. He, he insists on being called Tony. Right. He respected what we did. And so uh, I asked him, Tony, how did you become Hannibal Lecter? He said, I said, what scales did you do? Because he's an accomplished pianist also. Mm-hmm. And he said, what, I said, what scales did you do? He said, well, truthfully, he says, I sat and watched 50 hours of interviews with mass murders. And I took away one thing. Now we're leaning in, right? That one thing he took away was, he said, when they, are all, when they talk to you, they never blink. And if you go back and turn, get Silence of the Lamb, he, when he's on camera, he never blinks. That's how he got that maniacal kind of look. It's the darnest thing. And I wow. tell us people go read Silence of the Lamb because <laughs> it's a true story, you know. Hey, let me let me ask you this question. You know, look, you you've been on the you know you've played on scores for what fifteen hundred motion pictures and uh, uh, thousands and thousands of cartoons. Right. Um, what are the ones that bubble up? I mean, you just mentioned uh, you know Red Dragon because you talked to t- t- Anthony Hopkins, and uh, but what are some of the other films? And I'm not going to ask you what your favorite film was because. There, we, we, you know, in the business, no one has a favorite, I don't think, because they're like your children, you know, yeah. but, 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 but you have those ones that sort of bubble to the top and say, wow, I, I had such a great experience on that because, I mean, what are some of the ones that, that bubble up for you? Uh, again, I think for me, uh, I am thrilled to say that I played on Rockies two, three, four, five, and six. Bill Conti, uh, yeah, right. You know, I, I you know, it's uh, God. There, there's so many. Anything John Williams, The Hook. Uh, I mean, you know, of course, E.T. and Jurassic Park, and and I played on the Indiana Jones, uh, you know, the Crystal Skull, and you know, there's as far as favorite composers. I think after you know, top of the list would be uh, Jerry Goldsmith and of yeah. course John Williams. I love Michael G. Kino to work with. Mm-hmm. I did all the lethal lethal weapons, all four of those. I mean, yeah. you know, when I look at when I look at the uh, uh, the list of movies, and it's just so fun, especially for me now that I have grandchildren and they know, oh, Papa played on this, you know. But for me, going through the five hundred channels on cable. 
And in my head, I can't, oh, wow, I remember that. I did that one. I did this. <laughs> so I, I, think, I, think, I think, truthfully, the, uh, uh, the ones that really stick out the most, like Incredibles, and I'll tell you how that is. When, on, when you buy, I mean, that was an amazing score. It was really supposed to be John Barry. They wanted a James Bondish kind of thing, and John Barry couldn't do it. So they got this young guy, Michael Giacchino, who <laughs> out of the park, right? So when you when you when you buy the DVD, there was a thing you could go to music, right? And so uh, 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 you click on that, and it shows us playing the score. And there I am, and of course I like talking, and so it says the first trumpet, Rick Baptist, right? That just that one movie, Incredibles. I have, I mean, on Facebook to this day, I still get young trumpet players from around the world. Oh, you're my favorite trumpet player. You played on Incredibles. Just that one movie touched that many musicians. You know, isn't that and amazing? Yeah, it, it is amazing. I mean, to me, I you know, I, I just just a couple of weeks ago, I got a call from a young young trumpet player from Boputatswan, South Africa, Ooh, wow. and he says, "Could you friend me? You know, you're my favorite trumpet player." And I, I mean, that's that's why I I love what I do. It's really amazing. Uh, I, I'm just curious um, when it comes to doing animation or cartoon uh, music, uh, it is very much uh, different from uh, doing scores for live action films. And can you can Absolutely. you talk a little bit about that for our audience and and sort of explain the difference? Because I've heard this from so many musicians that that I've worked with, like yourself, over the years um, uh, about cartoon music being more difficult. It is, and and it's it. it it's, it's more difficult because there's, you know, tons of notes, you know, there is, but I think what I try to do, and a lot of my uh, fellow uh, musicians, a great trombone player, Alan Kaplan, especially on cartoon music, uh, there's a lot of times that we can make effects with our horn uh, that is not written by the composer. He's actually putting it back in our hands and say, hey, guys, this is what I want you to do do so i could put we can put our own personality into that and by doing that sometimes you hit a home run most of the time sometimes you know you follow it off and they all oh, we got to do that i don't like what you did there do it again but that is i think the most important thing with the cartoon music and to go back with what was the sight reading part of it you know because some of that music is pretty ridiculously hard and especially when we were doing uh, uh, all the tiny tunes and animations and Pinky, Pinky and the Brain Nose uh, that orchestra we would do probably three days a week cartoons just those cartoons and it got to the point where even us in the orchestra holy criminy this is amazing this band is amazing you know I mean it's nice to hear it from the people in the booth and the people that hire you. But when your fellow musicians come up to you, man, what you did yet, or this and that, you know, that's that's the rush that makes you. So yeah, cartoon music is a totally different style. It's yeah. a totally different style. You have to think out of the box. You have to, and again, I grew up listening to uh, uh, 
to uh, 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 all the cartoons. And Alan Kaplan, I talked to him, the trombone player, he was amazing with the plunger. And he actually wrote a joke book called, I, it was called The Art of Wah, because that's what we call it. <laughs> wah, 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 you know. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so, I mean, it's, uh, the, the, it's a totally different vibe than when you sit with on a John Williams date or whoever, you know, uh, Hans Zimmer, whoever. It's a totally different style of playing, but you still, you know, it's, I, I really think it would be, uh, uh, not everybody can do it. Yeah. And, and you know, one, one of the things that you, you just mentioned here about uh, uh, the composer or the conductor putting it on to you to make some sort of a, a sound or something to help accent the action mm -hmm. uh, in the cartoon. Um, one of the things I've always, uh, my, my view anyway on the projects that I had worked on was that I wanted the musicians to create the sound effects I didn't right. want to use sort of electronic sound effects. I wanted it to be musically done. And, and so on a lot of the projects you and I had worked on over the years, uh, that that's what Such we as, did. Uh, have Such a as, laugh. Yeah, there you go. The have a laugh. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know if I have one of those coffee mugs. <laughs> oh yeah. Re relax. We're starting with a 10 Mark waters, our buddy, Mark waters. Oh. <laughs> just, to, just to tell our audience, oftentimes uh, we would, you know, the sessions are, are you know, specific time frames. And, Usually uh, 10 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, it would start at 10 o'clock, but oftentimes Mark would be writing the score that we were recording, uh, you know, four or five hours before the 10 o'clock session. Right. And so at 10 o'clock, we would be like, where's Mark? And it was a running joke that we always started with a 10 at 10 o'clock. Right. So we had a 10 minute break at the beginning of the session. <laughs> yeah. So we could write the last, the last refrain. Yeah. Right. I love uh, it. Uh, listen, we were, we were in, we were in recording stages uh, over the years where Mark would uh, during lunch uh, be rewriting something uh, in the break room. Right. Remember, you know, yeah, I, I mean, true. it's, it's fantastic. Uh, but I love working with Mark. Uh, I mean, Mark, yeah. Mark, Mark and I had uh, worked ever, together for 20 years. Did you ever get a chance to work with Richard Stone? No, I did not. No. Richard Stone is the one who did all the Animaniacs, Tiny, Tiny Toons, Peaking the Brains. Uh, and and uh, Carl Stallings in the 40s was the one who really developed and this style of writing for uh, cartoons. And he worked for Disney and as well as Warner Brothers. And I really believe that when Carl Stallings passed that his his everything went into Richard Stone because he was amazing at writing that kind of music, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, Carl Stalling uh, was the first music director for uh, the Disney studios. Uh, in fact, he was the guy that came up with the idea of doing the silly symphonies, which were That's really right. music based cartoons. Uh, and he uh, was uh, uh, Walt knew him from Kansas city and, and coaxed them out to Los Angeles to, to work on uh, the, the early animation at Disney. And then Carl left and went to Warner Brothers and he spent his entire career, I think, till 1965 working at uh, Warner Brothers. Right. Yeah. And uh, I'm just curious, did you ever have a chance to work with him? Never. No, I, I never chance. I, 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 the other one I wanted to meet was Milt Franklin. But uh -huh. the thing is that on these things, on half of half of half, yeah. they 
actually pulled uh, uh, Mark Waters and everybody else pulled the original scores. So for me, that was such, and, and actually all the musicians, it was such a thrill to be able to play those notes mm-hmm. again, recreate them. Yeah. Those notes. And it was, that was, that was the closest I came to working with Mill Franklin and or uh, uh, Carl, you know? yeah, or Oliver Wallace, or Oliver, of course, yeah, yes. I mean, some, some of the, the other that was such a thrill to do those, yeah. and and yeah. and I know I I've told I've, I've uh, every on every session I would say that this is such a thrill, you know. When we did Society Dog Show, I actually brought in I have original cell from that, right? yeah, and I yeah, put that in and showed you, you know, yeah, but yeah, I'm I'm a fan. Aside from being a, a player, I'm a fan, yeah. Oh. Which adds to it. I think that that may, makes, you know, having that enthusiasm uh, comes out in the work that's done, you know. Um, you know, we, we were, you know, the musicians record all over town, but uh, some of the big venues are the Clint Eastwood recording stage right. uh, at Warner Brothers. And then there's the stage over at Sony Pictures. Uh, and of course, Capitol Records, the story yeah. Capitol Records. We, we, we did a lot of the have a laugh recordings, uh, right. in stage, stage A at, at Capitol Records. Um, do you have a favorite venue that you like to play at? I mean, I think in, in my heart, I, I truly loved working the Fox scoring stage, mm-hmm. the Newman scoring stage, but you know, and, and you had mentioned that Clint Eastwood and Clint Eastwood, there is a point when the Warner Brothers stage was going to go away. Yeah. And Clint Eastwood, God bless Clint Eastwood, came in and put the money to make sure that that stage stayed open. It's a great stage. Yeah, no, it's a fantastic stage. It really is. But, you know, that brings brings to mind a question for me that I've been wanting to ask you and that because you're you're also the vice president of the American Federation of Musicians, the Local 47. The yes, local 47 which encompasses all the Hollywood players, the, right. all the Hollywood scoring sessions. And what what is the state of the uh, uh the industry right now? How how have the the musicians uh, gotten through this pandemic and what's changing? Because I know that there's some recording sessions that are happening in Prague and other places around the world. What, what is that doing to the musicians here in, in Hollywood? Well, again, you're speaking because of COVID and, yeah. you know, so we could not, I mean, uh, I never in my life, I don't think anybody ever thought there would be anything that would come down the line that would literally stop the music. Yeah, I mean, there was no live. The, here you got we we had one of the greatest orchestras, the LA Philharmonic. They could not play anywhere, mm. and you know the Hollywood Bowl just now this week opened up, you know. But in the scoring stages, starting back in March, when everything just went away, you know, uh, we the we as the union <clears throat> have been working hand in hand with the LA County Fed and uh, 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 different doctors to write up a protocol to protect our musicians, Mm. right? And so uh, we actually started back recording in the studios. There was some, uh, quite a bit, uh, you know, like they're redoing now, I think it's uh, Animaniacs. And there were a lot of guys are doing, you know, things from home studios, they're recording. But as far as all the musicians in the scoring stage, uh, it started out as uh, 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 in about August, 
where musicians, especially string players, who can play with a mask on. Right. right? And so what they would do is they called striping sessions. So the strings would start at 10 o'clock in the morning. So you have all the violins. And instead of two persons a stand, one person on a stand, there was a lot of protocols, a lot of safety protocols. Uh, musicians constantly had to get tested and all that. Anyway, so the strings, uh, that's I'm talking about violins, violas, cellos, bass, they would record their music. And they would record from uh, uh, 10 to 10 to one and then uh, two to five. And then in the afternoon, they'd spray the building, they'd spray the other thing down and then they would allow the woodwind section to come in. And that was, they could come in and play. Now you have a huge stage and there's maybe 10, 12 woodwinds. So everybody would be stretched out, okay? And then in the evening, the brass would come in. Mm. Now, you know, it's so funny how they're saying, well, you know, when a trumpet player plays that instrument, all those droplets are going out. No, again, on a trumpet and any brass, we have a little mouthpiece with a very small hole that we put the air into. So there's not a lot of droplets that's going out. But again, there was there was a protocol of distance and all. And so we did that all the way up until around January. And then... Uh, um, when things started to cool down a little bit, uh, they're, they're again, very conscientious. The brass would be in the back with plexiglass in front of us or the percussions. So it is now picking up there. Uh, there are a lot of great movies that are uh, being scored. Um, and so it's starting to pick up, but that whole time the musicians were all you can do is sit home and practice right now right. the musicians you know the 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 musicians who have been around and, and work all different kinds of jobs uh we you know that you get residuals uh mm -hmm. for commercials uh you know uh, if you work on uh, uh live tv like i did for uh 12 uh, 12 season, uh, 14 seasons on dance with the stars so we would get residuals or you know so there was money coming in but still, we had a lot of musicians who had to go uh, to uh, unemployment. And yeah. now it's starting to open up, you know. I, uh, and, and like I said, Hollywood Bowl's open. The LA, uh, LA Philharmonic's going to play in there. So there is, it's slowly coming back. But it's, uh, it was really... It was really tough for a lot of our music. Sure, and and, and also uh, on, on multiple fronts because the the music the session musicians are you know I think people should consider them like freelancers, right? Because you Absolutely. get you, you get brought in to do a session and right. you get paid for that session, and then you hopefully are booked into another session the next day. Uh, right. But some of those musicians are also playing in the L.A. Philharmonic or they're playing in other uh, live, bridge, right? yeah. live groups and, and things like that. So, um, uh, they couldn't do any of that stuff for, you know, all last year, uh, which sort of, you know, uh, hit them on, on all sides. Right. Uh, and it was, it was really bad, but I also think that the other people that suffered were just the masses of people who missed hearing that music. And, sure. you know, that's, that's, I think that, you know, music, as, as David, as you know, it, 
without music in your life, you have a very boring life. Yeah, know? no, ab- absolutely. Again, you know, mu- music sets the tone. Uh, yeah. It sets the mood. Uh, you know, whether you, you know you want to listen to classical or jazz, or you want to go to a pop or rock concert. Uh, you know, uh, it gives you energy. Um, uh, and uh, you know, we 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 would be a very boring world without music. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> but Amen. but. What, but but has has the pandemic uh, uh, sort of exacerbated uh, some of the work going out of town? You know, uh, again, uh, before this happened, yeah, there was work that was going out of town to Prague or to Bratislava or to uh, uh, London. You know, uh, it was because, and it wasn't because. Of it was all because of money, right? Right. It always boils oh, down mean, to money, again, doesn't it? When you record the music here, mm-hmm. uh, uh, we the, the who plays on movies, uh, you get a soundtrack. You get you get paid for the soundtrack. You get and you know when you go to London and all that, you don't have to pay for that. You don't you know. So I think that's why a lot of it left for a while. Uh, there wasn't so much during COVID because even over there. They, they was worse off. They were worse Trump off. Were worse off. Yeah. So, you know, it's going to be interesting. I think that by next year, we'll be able to see which way the pendulum shifts yeah. and what happens, you know. But the main thing that it recently left town or does, we, they don't do it in L.A. is money. Yeah. The bottom yeah. line. And, and I think that's unfortunate because, you know, from my perspective, I've always felt like the uh, the musicians, the session musicians in Los Angeles are the best of the best. You know, well, I, I, I mean, that, that really is true. Right. I, and, I, and I know a lot of a lot of my fellow players around the world, you know. Yeah. And uh, they're great, great musicians everywhere. You know, it's just out here. You know, you could get it done. Let's say uh, I'm not going to say a place, but you could get it done. All the music recorded or, or you know, the amount of the music recorded in 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 uh, uh, eight hours, let's say. You know, that's a cumulative over some days. Over here, you get all the music recorded in three hours, three and a half hours, you know. So right. it's, we do it, we do it more because that's what we do all the time. We know how to do it. Yeah. And, you know, uh, so it's, uh, it, that that's frustrating, especially to musicians here who, you know, oh, why did you go over there? You know, and I had a great story that Jerry Goldsmith, well, I was very, uh, and, his, and his son, uh, I just uh, knew them very well. And I asked Jerry one time, he had a movie that went to London that he was going to do here, and he ended up going over there. I said, Jerry, why did you do this? He says, Rick, he says, they're paying me my price, which at the time was a million and a half dollars to write the score. Right. Putting me up in a castle. They're flying myself and my wife over first class and they're giving my wife a unlimited card to Herod's. Now what <laughs> I should do, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, you can't fight that. You sold. Sure. sold. Yeah. There you go. That, that, that's something else. What, what, when, when you uh, talk a little bit about the uh, live performances, like when you were in Vegas, who, who did you like performing uh, for or with uh, right. when Absolute. you were there? perfect job in Las Vegas for nine years. Uh, in Las Vegas at that time, they had 
11 hotels that had full house orchestras, uh, four trumpets, four trombones, five saxes, strings, harp, everything. Every hotel that had a showroom had a full orchestra. Well, and it was two shows a night, eight and midnight. That orchestra could only, we could only, musicians could only work six days a week. So on the, the acts who they hired, they had to work seven. So on the seventh, they would bring in the band that I played with. We had two relief bands. I was with Johnny Hayes relief band. And we would work six different hotels every week. That's awesome. So I had a chance to play every act from, you know, where, from Sinatra to Wayne Newton to Liberace to anybody you could think of. And I did that for nine years. Wow. And that cool thing about that was for me, I was heard by Nelson Riddle. And when I came to town, he put me to work and Peter Matt, but that was the best job in town. I played every act you could think of, you know, in the world. I mean, for me in Reno, when I was up there 20, I just turned 21 years old. And on December, Bill Cosby came in and his opening act was Dizzy Gillespie. Oh, wow. I had a chance to play with Dizzy Gillespie, hang with him, sit up in his room, you know. I mean, uh, that's that's the that's the cool thing, you that's know. Awesome. And, and as far as far as those big acts go, uh, uh, who, where, you know, who'd you have the most fun with? Uh, who was uh, part of the gang? I mean, it was uh, again. I have to say that all the acts, they, they appreciate musicians. Yeah. The comedians appreciate the musicians, you know. And so uh, and just as far as hanging, uh, you know, again, it was Dizzy. Uh, Rafael Mendez came in as a conductor for uh, Roy Rogers, you know. Uh, it was... <sighs> You know, at that time in Vegas, it was the place to be. We actually had uh, the 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 union was open till four o'clock in the morning. They'd have rehearsal bands at two o'clock in the morning. A bar. I mean, it was it was a hang. You know, here in the twenty, I mean, my twenties, and it was it was crazy. It really was. You know, how, how was it living in Vegas during that time? At that time, it was amazing. Again, because of my asthma, it's very dry, so I had no asthma troubles there. Right. I tell when there was one cloud in the sky, because I my I could feel my lungs tighten up. You know, wow. but it was it. You know, it, and the school system is unbelievable there. But you just adjust the way you live. For example, yeah. like I said, we we would play a show at eight o'clock at night. We would play a show at midnight. We would I would come home after the eight o'clock show at usually nine fifteen, and that's when we would, I would eat dinner, mm. and then I'd go back and play the show. We had a baseball softball league that started at three thirty in the morning <laughs> for musicians and pit bosses and dealers because oh. it was. And you would play softball, the games would go until like, you know, 5.30 in the morning, and then the guys who were into golf, such as myself, we'd golf, you know, and then you were back home by 9 o'clock, and you slept all the way until... Six o'clock, and then you get up and go to work. So that's the whole thing. Your whole time schedule all changes. But that's, you know, I couldn't, I, when I moved here, obviously, it took a little while to get used to normally hours. You know? Sure, sure. Did you, now, did you, during that time period, did you play uh, in a uh, in a house band or, or an orchestra? Yeah, the relief or, band. It was called the relief band. Yeah, the band. relief band. But did you play for any rock musicians? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Every every rock act you could think of, you know. I mean, yeah. we did uh, Willie Nelson all the way. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Elvis. My God, I played Elvis's act so many times. Really, wow. You know, and so yeah, there was there was that. Plus, there was filming. They would do TV specials, so I had a chance to learn how yeah. to do that. You know, it was just an amazing time for music. It really was. I, I, I that that's unbelievable. What what made you move to Los Angeles? Was it just the desire this to was work in film? Dream from when I was a little kid, that every time I saw the Oscars, I said one day I'd want to do that. So mm. I knew that L.A. was the place. But I had to I had to hone my craft. So I went to Reno for two years and worked at Eric Reno for two years. Then I went to Vegas and worked all these different acts and everything. And so that made me a better all-around player. So when I came here, I was ready. Right, right. So, you know, one thing I did want to ask you was that you you played literally for like 60 years. And do you still play? But I know you've kind of retired from doing the session work. Is that right? Talk talk about that. What it is is, you know, uh, there was, uh, I mean, I've done... uh, John Acosta, who is, who is who was the president, we have a new president now, Stephanie O'Keefe, our first female president uh, in the local 47 in its 125 years history. Awesome. Anyway, when John approached, approached me in, 19, in 2014, he said, Rick, he said, I think you'd be a great vice president. You know, uh, you continue, you, everybody knows you, blah, blah, blah. And so I had to think about it because title officers are not allowed to play their instruments. Ah. Uh. So I thought, you know what? I've done everything I ever dreamt of as a player. Why not take the job? And so what I did was I would bring my horn to work, and then at five o'clock I'd get it out. You know, it's for when it was we were supposed to leave. And then after about five months, I realized, you know what? I didn't touch my horn at all that time. And at that point, I thought, okay, but yet still, I get those pangs, like like uh, every year the Oscars on those, those yeah. years, I couldn't do. I mean, I did. But for me, the one that really, Michael G. Kino did the uh, Jurassic Park, the remake of Jurassic Park, right? Yeah. And so I did the original one at Sony, at, at Sony with... Uh, with John Williams. And so Michael, I had just been uh, a vice president for about six, seven months. And he invited me, him and Reggie Wilson invited me over to the studio to listen, you know, to the thing. Now I was Michael Giacchino's first trumpet player, played on all his things. And so I said, yeah, that's cool. So I went and talked to the orchestra and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Hey guys, it's great. You know this. And I sat down in the front next to Reggie in the front of, you know, orchestra at his desk. And the first two they played was the Jurassic Park theme. And, and it hit me. Oh man. I did the original one there and I could have, if I wasn't vice president, been back in the trumpet section and I looked at Reggie and I was crying. I said, Reggie, I got to leave. I cannot be here, Mm. you know? And so, I mean, I love playing, but right now someone says, well, why don't you just pick your horn up and play? Because it would probably drive me nuts because I know that I couldn't even get even this close to what I used to play Mm. and that would piss me off. And so that's why I just decided I'd leave it in the case. I try to inspire and talk to younger musicians. That's what I love doing. I love every, every year I, I speak to the music classes 
any kind of music classes at 13 different colleges. Uh, I just spoke uh, to uh, to a class uh, at Eastman. Uh, I just at Howard University. I just did a thing, you know. And so, in a way, you know, what I what I tell them is I I, I lie about my career and then I talk about the union. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but this, you know, I love because I love getting these questions because there's always questions because a lot of their teachers. They're, you know, they've never done what I've done, you know. And so I love imparting those facts to the younger musicians and inspire that way. And that's so. But in answer to your question, yeah, I I do miss it every once in a while. I don't miss because I never like I told you I never liked the practicing, but I played all the time. So I didn't have to practice. Right, right. But, But do you play for yourself at all now? Oh, Do you pick? Nothing. You don't even pick it up at all, really. No, I have it no. right up there in the case. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, yeah. You know. Well, no. maybe maybe after maybe after our discussion, you'll you'll maybe, pull it okay. out and then give it a, <laughs> give, give it a toot. Uh, <laughs> what the hell is that noise? You know, because hey, yeah. you, you, coming out of this house. You, you mentioned uh, somebody that we both know, Reggie, uh, and uh, I I always viewed him as a wrangler. He he's like a, a music wrangler. But uh, can you explain to our audience what Reggie <laughs> does and what people like Reggie do in the business? Absolutely. Uh, Reggie is, is what we call a contractor, musical contractor. All right. And so when the composer gets the job, you know, he, he feels comfortable working with, we have, we have four or five or six different contractors in this town, sometimes more, who either composers, different composer likes using. And what the contractor does, there is a service in town called Dateline. And all, most of the musicians are member of Dateline. And what Dateline does is Reggie, finds out what the instrumentation is from the composer. And Reggie has his list of musicians as well as the composer uh, has their list of favorite players. The contractor has to call him, even if it's somebody Reggie does not know. And let's say it's the uncle of one of the, of the composer. He says, I really, this guy plays a great violin, bring him. So Reggie hires him, you know. So what, what Reggie does is then he puts his list together that he works with the, uh, with the composer. And then he sends that list to Dateline. Dateline puts the call out. Mm-hmm. And all of our musicians, again, and you had said it about freelance. It's true. The joke is you wait until the phone rings, Yeah. you know, and then, you know, you're going to go to work. So everybody has a book, you know, and we know, and they call. So Dateline says, Hey, uh, it's Reggie Wilson. It's a Pixar movie. It's next Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, 10 o'clock, double sessions. Most sessions are based on three hours. Okay. We right. call it a single session. A double session is uh, uh, 10 to one. Uh, lunch, one hour lunch, and then two to five. So Dateline calls and says, can you make this? If you make it, you say, yes, you write it down, you're on the job. Right. So that's what Reggie does. Uh, Reggie is, uh, and all the contractors, they're, you know, they, they really, it's, it's an amazing job. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I thought at one time, before I, I became the vice president, I thought, yeah, maybe I, you know, I would, I would enjoy doing the uh, um, uh, contracting. And then I, man, the paperwork, because there's, yeah, oh my gosh. Out. There's so many different things. I said, eh, I'm just going to keep playing my and, trumpet. And, and, and Reggie, Reggie knows the, uh, the, the contract, the, the, Absolutely. in other words, the, the musician. Actually, Reggie, one of those, uh, because, uh, you know, for years at Disney, he was, yeah. 
I think he was vice president of music or whatever. Right, right. He he so was he is sitting across the table yeah. when we are negotiating these contracts. Yeah. So yes, it's, uh, uh, it's, and, uh, so he's got the stopwatch and he's, he's sitting there, yeah. uh, and keeping track of stuff during a session sure and knows, it, knows it, when there needs to be a break and all of that. Right. Cause yeah. if he, if he, uh, you know, it could get out of hand. Uh, uh, he has to, you know, if we have to, let's say go overtime, you know, that's, that's mm. based on 15 minutes for a full orchestra. Right. That's a, Funny, so Reggie is kind of cracking the whip, but the way he does it, he is brilliant. Yeah, the nicest. Uh, 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 again, was a musician, violin, and he hates when I tell him that. But I, <laughs> but, uh, because I actually have pictures of him goofing around on the violin, and one day I blew an eight by ten, and I gave it to him. He says, and he rips it up. He says, "Don't ever show this to anybody." <laughs> but uh, oh, he, yeah, you know, you he. He makes it fun. That's yeah. the thing is, you know, uh, nobody wants to walk into a situation. Oh, if I, if I say something, you know, you're not going to get the best out of these people sure. working for Reggie, working for Mark, working for Michael Giacchino, working for these guys who, you know, in their heart, they truly appreciate what you do. Mm-hmm. I will do anything for those guys yeah. because they appreciate us. Yeah, we never, yeah. you know, uh, work in the studios, you never, you don't hear the applause. You don't hear that instant gratification when you're doing live. Yeah. But you know that uh, 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 Walter Murphy's another great guy who after he does, he does all the family guys. Right. Yeah. In fact, I, I love telling this story is that he called me uh, and uh, Walter, Walter Murphy in the 70s had a huge hit, huge hit called The Fifth of Beethoven. That's right. I don't know if you remember that. The disco, the disco, the disco version. Yeah. Yeah. It was the disco. Right. And he had a huge hit on that. Well, he, he got this call from this young guy, Seth McFarlane. (laughs) And so he called me and he called Alan and Dan Higgins on sex. And he says, come on. We said, we got this new, this new, uh, we're going to do the main title for this new TV uh, cartoon show called family guy. And so I went over to Walter's studio and there was this young guy sitting on the couch. And so I recorded all the trumpet parts. So when you listen to the family guy, the main title, that's me and on all four trumpet parts. Right? <laughs> and Alan Kaplan, all the trombone and Dan. Yeah. Hanks, right? And so I remember, uh, you know, playing. And then after uh, uh, this young guy, he says, oh, uh, guys, I want you to meet uh, uh, the guy who created it. And it's Seth MacFarlane, the genius. Yeah. Seth MacFarlane, yeah. You know? yeah. And so, yeah, that's that's the cool thing. It really is. <laughs> so, I, let, let me let me ask you because uh, um, we're we're bumping up against an hour now. I, I want to ask you uh, what advice do you give to that next generation that's in college uh, and aspiring to those kinds of dreams that you had of wanting to play on motion pictures. Perfect. And this is exactly what I do. And thank you for that. Uh, again, that's why I love being by because any new members, they come through my office after they have their orientation and I sit them down and I said, what do you want to do? Oh, you want to work in studios. Okay. And this is, again, when I speak to all the colleges, the teachers hate when I say this, but resumes 
are a waste of paper. And I'll tell you that, and they, and they <laughs> well, sometimes it's good. I said, no, because you can say whatever you want on a resume. You send all the resumes out. You send them to a contractor like Reggie, who you could imagine the amount of resumes he must get every day. But, so I tell him, this is what I do. This is what I tell him to do. All right, let's say, I right, like, uh, 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 you're a violin player, okay? You find out, or else I'll tell him, who is the number one concert master in town. Because the concert masters are one that puts the list of the violins that are going to sit behind him and gives them to the contractor, right? So you call the concert master. In this case, it'd be Bruce Dukoff or or uh, Belinda Broughton. Who you yeah, know, right? yeah, Belinda. Yeah, right? we love her. So I would say I give them their number, call them and ask them for a lesson. And this is on any instrument. I would do this. Ask them for a lesson. I said that seventy five hundred dollars that you would pay for the lesson. They what what then at that point Belinda hears you play. Wow, very good. Also, she sees what kind of personality you have. Are you gonna fit into personality wise with the rest of the section, right? And then when she calls Reggie and says, Reggie, I just heard this new young player. This is their name. That's how you get in the studio. And that, and I also tell them the first thing when they walk into my office, I said. Wait a minute, let me, I said, okay, give me your card. That's a business card. Mostly they said, oh, I don't have a card. I said, this is the cheapest form of advertisement. You never know who's going to in the audience when you're playing. You could be playing at church. You could be playing with your case open in front of Trader Joe's. Someone walks up to you and says, hey, you sound great. You have a card, right? That's how you get found out. For me, I had the perfect example. I had just moved to town. I uh, hadn't really started working a lot. And at the Beverly Hilton, uh, I got called to do a Saturday night dance job with this older older band. And I went and played, stood up and played a couple of solos and had a funny, you know, made a hundred bucks, whatever. After the job, a gentleman walked, older gentleman walked up to me and he says, I really enjoyed your trumpet, your sound. I like your sound and your solos. I said, well, thank you. He said, do you have a card? I said, yes, sir. I gave him my card. Now I had just moved to town, right? And he says, I'm going to give it to my contractor. He'll be contacting you. That person was David Rose. And the TV show I got called to do was Highway to Heaven that I did for the next five years from that one job that they heard me play. Wow, that's amazing. Well, there you go. Those are some words. Hey, uh, 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 Rick, we have some listener questions okay, uh, good. that uh, Al John is going to uh, uh, put to you uh, at this moment. Cool. Absolutely. Rick. Here they are. Skull Rock Podcast. Answers your email. So, Rick, we put the word out to our fans and the, they responded in kind. So, Lisa C says, What was it like working on live TV like you did for Dancing with the Stars? Can you share a story or funny moment from your work on that show? Absolutely. I, you know, for us, we truly love that show. And again, that show started out as a summer replacement show. All right. We were we did the first uh, the group of musicians uh, did the first four seasons of uh, American Idol. And then we got called to do this ballroom dance show that Disney heard over in uh, England. Over in England, it's called Strictly Come Dancing. Right. So we got together. Harold Wheeler put together a really and Bill Hughes put together a great band. And so a week before we went on the air, we had to go 
uh, with the dancers, and we played for a bunch of Disney suits who sat out there, right? They wanted to see what they were paying for, right? And so we played, and the music, again, a great band and singers we had, and and uh, Tom Rainier texted, while we're doing this, text Salazano, saxophone player, and said, wow, I feel like we're playing on the Titanic, right? We <laughs> thought, who the hell is going to watch a ballroom dancing show? Ended up being 20 million people a week. Yes. And the thing I always loved was as they're walking down the stairs at the beginning of the show, the last shot always went to me going. Bah, 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 bah. That's right. Yeah. But anyway, it was it was an amazing shows. It was, as I said, everybody, it was absolutely live. It was uh, a, a great band. And the eye candy wasn't bad. Yeah, that's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, those those dresses are something else. Dale B. And believe me, I have a lot of photos. I bet you do. I bet you do. Uh, yeah. Dale B. is asking. I love your work in Disney Soul, uh, Pixar Soul. Do you have a favorite soundtrack, and what is your favorite musician-based film? Ooh, musician-based film meaning. Yeah. Uh, I guess they mean maybe it was like not a musical, but like a a story maybe, of maybe of a, 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 about a, a musician? about a musician. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Biopic uh, I think uh, yeah. I mean, again, uh, because the mo- you know the most uh, uh, credits I get for is Incredibles. I think that's probably one of my favorites. You know, but I've done you know Bill Conti wrote his. Uh, 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 um, uh, blood in, blood out, which that's I'm right. featured uh, through the whole thing. Oh my God, it's that's that's a it's a heavy movie. It really is. But uh, and I think as far as growing up, any one of the uh, 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 you know singing in the rain. I mean, you know, when when you think about that, or uh, you know, because when I became when I, I I found out who those players were back in those days that played on those scores. And I love, you know, we're talking about the forties and fifties and the amazing players. So, I mean, it's, uh, that's a tough one. Uh, I love play on, uh, 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 Clint Eastwood bird did that movie. And that was an amazing movie to play on uh, and to and watch. And, and, and it's, the story is pretty, pretty right on. I got to admit. You know? And that's a director who really appreciates music. Oh, oh of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Abs. And you know what? He's a life member of Local 47. Oh, that's oh, awesome. There you go. I love it. John S. is asking you, uh, and you kind of hinted on this, um, what musicians influenced you? Uh, truthfully, um, uh, again, growing up, uh, I, my teacher wanted me to be a, a legit trumpet player, you know, or, orchestra player. But then I heard Maynard Ferguson. I heard Woody Herman's band. I heard Count Basie's band. And so then I started to listen to all those guys, especially like Snooky Young for Count Basie. And, uh, you know, I just, yeah, I, I think that's as far as a trumpet player, you know, of course, Dizzy Gillespie, you know, Miles and all those things. But for me, it was always I loved the big band and those guys, those trumpet players. And I'm thrilled to say that I worked with them. And, you know, Conrad Gazzo, I never worked with him, who played on all of Sinatra's records. You know, I mean, there's so many great, uh, Pete Condoli and, you know, John Ardino on the on the Tonight Show and Doc. I love Doc. You know, uh-huh. Doc just had a birthday two days ago. He's 94 years old Ooh. and still playing his Wow. Amazing. wow. Amazing. Yeah. You could be like uh, the Tijuana Brass and, and, and be on the top. Yeah. Floor. And Herb, and then, you know, of course, her and Herb's a good friend and. 
boy, talk about an amazing philanthropist. Hopefully. Oh, my gosh. So, uh, Rick, uh, the uh, music school over at Cal Arts is the Herb Albert Music School. There you go. No, I, no, it's it's, it's uh, 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 Cal. Uh, oh my gosh, it's, California Institute of the Arts. It's yeah, but it's uh, LACC. LACC is, has the Herb Albert. He gave them ten point one million dollars wow. to build it. Oh my god. Arts also, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really something else. Has, uh, yeah, that's uh, awesome. amazing, amazing for uh, philanthropist. Yeah, cool. la- last, last, last bit for you. We have a little bit of word association word for you. So uh, okay. feel free to respond in like a word or two about some of these figures in your life. Frank Sinatra. I traveled on the road with him for three years. Recorded with him. Genius. He yeah. called me kid. <laughs> did he give you a lighter? No, but I, I, did, uh, I do have I do have some things right on my wall right there. I did all the, the duets album, and I had him sign the uh, paper that showed the uh, songs that he sang that night at Capitol. Oh, that's amazing, John Williams, genius, the best, the uh, amazing. He is any musician who has ever worked for John Williams. The greatest. Barbara Streisand. Really amazing. I've done a lot of albums with Barbara. She is a genius. We were doing her Broadway album, and it was so funny because she was standing literally right next to the oboe player who had a big solo, and she was talking with Peter Matz, and she says, what is that sound? Who's playing that? And she was literally standing right next to the guy, you know. But Barbara, again, a genius. (laughs) What can you say? I mean, that voice... Is the best. She is. Sylvester Stallone. Fly is the greatest guy. And uh, I think a lot of the people, hopefully they've seen the YouTube clip on uh, Rocky Balboa. And the way that came about was uh, we had recorded uh, uh, with a smaller group, uh, the bump, bump, ba-da-dum, 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 right? And, and so when uh, Sly came in, uh, he came to Fox scoring stage and he played it. And, we, and they played it on the speakers. We had nine trumpets. I had nine horses. I mean, it was amazing, you know. And so Bill Conti says, Rick, you got to help me out. We got to, we got to, we got to sell this. So Sly listened to me. He said, you know, Bill, it's, you know, this is, I'm six years old. I'm just coming back on this. And I, this, I, you know, and so he, we, I said, well, Sly, why don't you come out? and stand in front of the brass section so you can feel the power, right? And so he said, okay, Bill Conti's going like this, you know. And so we walked out. I I said, guys, as I'm walking out, I said to the guys, guys, play as loud as you can and aim at his head, right? And so, and like I said, we had some real horses, right? And so (laughs) no more than 15 feet away, and and I counted off one, two, three, and the string players are going like this, ducking, you know. He never flinched, never flinched. And he says, well, you know, and you, you can see on the YouTube thing. No, he says, that's good. You know, I just want you. And I says, well, sir, the only thing I can think about is that why don't we double it? Now, what that means is we had nine trumpets. If we double track it, there's like 18 trumpets and 12 trombones and 24. And so I was a hero because all of my brass players, we got double scale. Because <laughs> that's how we finally ended up selling it to slide. So, that's but amazing. that's, that's, yeah. 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 That's, one is good. Two is better. So more is better. Two is much better. <laughs> Thank La- you for the box. That's yeah. right. That's right. Last one. Alan Menken. Alan Menken. Again, just, 
I'm so thrilled to say I played on, you know, uh, all of almost all of his his movies. He's brilliant. He's a very caring. Uh, uh, and uh, Michael Starabin, who is his orchestrator. I mean, this these people, how could you not be impressed with what they do? And like I said, then when you get a chance to really meet them, and they're normal people. They appreciated what we did, what we brought to their score. And so, yes, Alan Macon, and the best. Alan, and, Alan, Alan's incredible. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, you know, right. I, I was just going to say, Alan is is probably one of the most grounded, nicest people I've ever met in the industry. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Incredible. Well, that's yeah, he, uh, yeah. and, and now, Let me put it out there to everybody listening. And this is something that I've done, and, and I know David knows, is I, I get autographs. You know, I mean, that's something for me is, you know, I, I every, like, uh, 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 when all the movies I've worked on, uh, the, the copies have a big 11 by 17 sheet that shows all the scores on it, says the date that we did this course. I always had the composer, the director, if there's any star show, I haven't signed that. And I have over a thousand oh. in a folder here that no, those, those are kind of things that, that, you know, it's always great memories. So get autographs. Well, you know something? Yeah. No, I, I, I did the same thing, uh, Rick, uh, when, whenever I did recording sessions with you guys, I always, I always took the top sheet and, and had Mark or, you know, all, all the musicians that were playing, I had them sign. Uh, okay. and, and those are just wonderful mementos to have. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. They really are. That's great. Well, man. I, I have to say that brings us to uh, uh, the end. Uh, but uh, I have to say, Rick, it's so wonderful to to see you, and I'm so thankful that you uh, were you know had the time to come on our show and talk a little bit behind the scenes about the music and all that. So I'll give you the parting words. Okay, cool. Well, for me, again, I. Uh, I'm a fan of you. You know that. And, but this, I, uh, uh, I hopefully it comes across the enthusiasm, the love, and it's the greatest gift that God could give us to do something that you love doing and get paid for it. How cool is that? And that's the parting words is that it's an amazing life. It's, you know, just, Go for it. Have a dream and go for it. There you have it. Thank you so much, Rick, for being on the Skull Rock Podcast. Thank you. Thank you, John. I'll, anytime, if you want me to come back, I'll be there in a second. <laughs> Absolutely. What do you think, Close. <laughs> This is sly It's like they haven't heard this for years, so that first initial four or five notes, it almost has to be like it's an explosion of air where you're pushing as hard as you could possibly push. Okay. So it isn't like a control thing. It's very sharp. Okay. You know what I 
attention, please. Now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney. Wow, what a great, great chat. It really was. I mean, I love Rick. Uh, He's just an amazing musician and just a wonderful human being. I mean, just giving, uh, you know, just never, he always has a smile on his face. I mean, he's just a very enthusiastic and upbeat guy and I love him. It's always great to surround yourself with those type of people that just bring joy to to everything they touch. So that's amazing. (laughs) So we have some upcoming guests. I don't know if you want to uh, spill the beans on any of them. Well, you know what? Let's spill the beans. Uh, next week, we, okay. we're going to have uh, Tom uh, Bancroft, animator and studio owner. Tom Bank- Bancroft is on next week. And then the following week, uh, we're going to have uh, the incredibly talented and old friend of mine, Jeff DeGrandis, uh, who was very instrumental with Dora the Explorer and SpongeBob. And we're going to be talking all about animation and uh, some wonderful series television animation. Can't wait. So- Sounds like a blast. And once again, team, if you're loving loving the show, we thank you. We'd love for you to give us a review. Now that I've got a new iPhone 12, Dave, I've got an iPhone 12. I'm back in the Apple sphere. Uh, I just did it over this past week. I couldn't help myself. But send us those emails, Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com, Aljohn at SkullRockPodcast.com. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe to the show on everywhere you get podcasts and our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, and be sure to check out all the shows in our archive there, uh, wherever you get podcasts. Dave, you have the last word. Well, as always, peace and love to you all. Uh, Go out, start the week, uh, be kind to one another, and enjoy, and go out to the movies. Be safe, but go out to the movies, and we will see you here on the Skull Rock Podcast next week. I'm Al John Goh, co-host of the Disney List podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock podcast here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times so they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next disney cruise disney park trip adventures by disney they can contact me at theme parks and cruises at gmail.com i'm kristen hetzel vacation planner world traveler disney foodie and theme park fan I'm Al John Go. I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host a Disney List podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. Even stream us on Sorcerer Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook, The Disney List Podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com.